Well, here we are in Luke chapter 3. Um, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that um, we were looking at uh, John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for the Lord. And that uh, phrase, the Lord, was quoting the Old Testament, and the Lord was Yahweh, God himself. And so God himself was going to come. And so it was no surprise when John was asked, are you the Messiah, are you the one who was going to come? John said, no, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals, a job that everyone knew was reserved not even for Hebrew slaves. It was kind of for the lowest of the low. It was the kind of thing that no one was expected to do. And um, John says, I'm not even worthy to do what even slaves are, not, uh, are expected to do. They're not expected to do. And so uh, John said that the one who would come after him, this Lord who was coming, uh, would do in reality what John only did in picture form. So John was uh, baptising people. Uh, and so they went down into the water to symbolise that they were dying to their old way of life and then raising up out of the water to show that they were given a new life in relationship with God. But John said, what I'm doing with water, visually, he's going to do in reality in your hearts. He's going to do by the Holy Spirit. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And the question as we come to this passage is, is how? How is he going to do this? How is God himself, come in human form, going to baptise us with the Holy Spirit, give us the relationship with God that John's baptism only pictured, only symbolised. And the answer we're going to see as we look through this is that Jesus, the perfect Son of God, succeeds where we fail. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, succeeds where we fail. That's why I've called it the perfect candidate. The perfect candidate. And so... When we're thinking about our identity, our value, uh, where we find our security, we're looking to find it in Jesus himself. Well first, as as Gemma read, Jesus comes and he identifies with us in baptism, which is a bit odd, isn't it? Because John had said last week that this was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was a way of, of coming back to God and saying, I turn away from my old life, I turn away from my pursuit of independence. So if God's over there, I'm sort of running this way. And instead, I I repent, I turn around, and I turn back to God. And I accept the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus was perfect. Why did he need to be baptised? And the reason it seems, which he says more explicitly in Matthew's Gospel, is that, that he was identifying with us. You see, Jesus came to represent us, to be the perfect candidate that we fail to be. And so he starts his ministry looking like, or trying to do the things that everyone else was expected to do. But something extraordinary happens. And that leads us to our first point. Jesus, the Son of God, is recognised. Jesus, the Son of God, is recognised. That's there in the first, two, the first little paragraph on your sheets. Let me read that again. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. don't know what that would have looked like visually, but I suppose whatever we can imagine in our mind's eye, that's why it's described as that. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form <coughs> like a dove. Striking that this 
great display from God happened while Jesus was praying. So as Jesus comes as the perfect candidate, as the perfect son of God, he models for us total dependence on his heavenly father. You'd think, gosh, if there's one person who didn't need to depend on God, it would be Jesus because he was perfect. No, an expression of his perfection is his prayerfulness. And we'll see that a lot through Luke's Gospel. So, the Holy Spirit comes down. Why in bodily form like a dove? Well, there's lots of guesswork done by theologians. I think the simple, simple thing we can say is, is that there's a visible representation of God, the Holy Spirit, who is an invisible person. And what we get here is an expression of the fact that God is one, and yet at the same time three. Here we get Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and the Father who speaks. And the Father's voice comes forth, and he says... You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. A public declaration. In some ways you could say, Jesus, the son of, for this first point, Jesus, the son of God, is declared, is presented. But for the first time, people really get to see, okay, this is the claim about Jesus, and it's not just his own claim. It's a declaration from heaven. He gets recognised. He gets recognised as the son who God loves, with whom God is well pleased. Now for Jesus, and for all those who had their Old Testaments, the the first half of their Bibles ringing in their ears, who, who knew the word of God inside out, this would have immediately sparked links back to the Old Testament. And there's two key links that it would have sparked back, and I've put them there on the sheet under the first point. The first is there in Psalm 2, which is, um, I call it a messianic psalm. It's, it's looking forward to the great king who will come and destroy God's enemies and bring in reconciliation and peace for those who will trust in him. And there's a little conversation that goes on in Psalm 2. And so I've put in square brackets so that you can see who's talking. The father says, verse 6, there on the sheets, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then the son responds, both to the father and in declaration to the listeners, the watching world. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession." So here's a a sort of looking forward or a a kind of expression of what's going on in the heavenly realms between God the Father and God the Son. And there's a promise from the Father to the Son of a gift. And that gift is the gift of the nations. And that promise was also made to God's people. And we'll think in a moment about how God's people, who were supposed to be a picture of the Son of God, who were supposed to be in right relationship with God like a father and a son, they were promised through Abraham that the nations would be their inheritance. And yet, as we'll see, they failed and they failed and they failed and they failed to live up to that reality. But here is the true Son being promised 
the nations as his inheritance. And so that declaration, as Jesus comes up out of the water, as he's praying, God's saying, you are my son. Everyone who knows their psalms will be thinking, this is the one. This is the rescuer. This is the judge. This is the ruler. And then that next little phrase, with whom I am well pleased, or with you I am well pleased, again would have brought to mind another great passage that links to loads of other passages in the book of Isaiah. It's there on your sheets, Isaiah 42, where God speaks to his chosen servant. Verse 1, there on the sheets. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. And that phrase, in whom I delight, is written in Hebrew. What we read was written in Greek, with you I'm well pleased, but it's pretty much exactly the same. All the theologians agree they could map onto each other. You could put, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one with whom I'm well pleased, or this is my son whom I loved, with you I delight, in you I delight. It's the same phrase. And so it would have brought to mind this passage of the one who would come as the servant who would rescue God's people. I will put my spirit on him, Isaiah 42 verse 1 continues, and he will bring justice to the nations. So God's rescue plan is coming in. And who is it coming in on? It's coming in with Jesus. He is the chosen one who's going to fulfill God's promises. But even as (coughs) that great phrase from Isaiah 42 comes to Jesus' mind, oh yes, I am the servant in who God the Father delights. So too the rest of the passages in Isaiah about the servant would come to mind, including the passage about the servant who suffered and died and gave his life to bear the sin, to bear the iniquity of the people who failed to live for God, to bring them back into relationship with him, to have many spiritual children because he would die and rise. And so here we're looking forward to the great rescue plan. But before we go into more detail on the rescue plan, uh, we're going to go on to our next point. Jesus, the Son of God can represent us. So first he's recognised, he's announced, he's proclaimed by God. The question is, well if he's God himself, how can he represent us? Well, let's read on. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. So the point we get here is Jesus has lived on this earth for 30 years already. He didn't just sort of come, get baptised, get declared and then start. No, Jesus was born, as we've seen, as a little baby. The Son of God took humanity to himself in weakness, in poverty. And he grew up with all the experiences that we have. He had to learn, we learnt in chapter 2. He had to learn and grow. He didn't automatically know all the names of the people who were in front of him as they watched him being baptised. He didn't just know everything in advance. In fact, it seems he didn't even necessarily know that he was the Son of God until he started to read it in God's Word. 
And he learned that and that reality. And we saw him, age 12, realising that and spending time in his father's house. Realising that he had a relationship with God that, that others didn't have. And so this proclamation from God, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased, was a kind of beautiful affirmation that, that Jesus needed and would have held on to. And would have given him the confidence to step forth. Extraordinary to think he would have had to learn these kind of things. He was a normal human being. Just without sin. And then what we get is this long list of names. But before that, it says, Jesus was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. And and there's a little reminder Luke's giving us. Remember that bit in in chapters 1 and 2? Jesus was born of Mary, but Mary was a virgin. She hadn't slept with Joseph. Joseph was her nominal father, but actually not her physical father. His physical father. Uh, Joseph was, um, rather God was Jesus' father. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary and did a miracle, so she conceived without natural conception. And so Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. But here in this list of names, we get the fully human. Now, some people have a little bit of a problem with this because it differs from Matthew's list of names. So in Matthew chapter 1, there's a list of names. Um, And people get worried about that and they try and work it out and map it out. I think the very simplest solution is that, well, firstly, when you follow a, a, a genealogy, a list of uh, grandparents, you can go either side, and especially when there's been multiple marriages in um, in families, then the genealogies sort of split and break up, and so you can follow two different lives. I think the simplest explanation, although it doesn't explicitly say it, is that this is following Mary's line, because um, in Luke's Gospel, it's all through Mary's experience, chapters 1 and 2 and 3 seem to be through Mary's experience, where, whereas in Matthew's Gospel, it's through Joseph's experience. And it's all about how God spoke to Joseph, or we hear Mary's experience through Joseph's perspective. And the reason it seems that there's no particular worry about this is because the the break in the genealogy in the family lines comes with the first generation before um, Mary and Joseph. Um, So Jesus' grandparents. Episode 1 in in Matthew, um, it's, uh, I think, uh, Joseph's father is called Jacob. And in this, Joseph's father is called Heli. And what seems to have happened, what is a perfectly logical explanation, is that Heli had no sons. And so Heli did what was very normal. If you didn't have a son, because everything was through the male line in those days and in that culture, uh, you would adopt your son-in-law as your son. And so uh, it seems that Heli adopted Joseph... Um, but then when we trace it back through Heli, it's obviously Mary's family line. And so we go back up that way. If you ever, sometimes people raise that as a question, so it's a slightly technical question. Sometimes people raise that as a question of the reliability of the text. Given that Luke goes into so much detail, it would be very odd if he was just plucking this out of thin air. Um, so uh, that would be the way I think about it. Um, now the reason for this list of names and the reason they're important is because it's a reminder that Jesus had a full family line going all the way back. But we're not going to zoom in on any particular names other than 
David, who's there, the great King David, in all the um, uh, prophecies in chapters 1 and 2, it was very important that he was the son of David, because the Messiah would be the son of David. And then it goes all the way back, and the key emphasis here is the son of Adam, the son of God. Son of Adam, son of God. Now, for Jesus to be able to represent us, he had to be fully God and fully man. Now, when you think of uh, Jesus, the son of God, to represent us, sorry, I've had that picture up there and I haven't explained it. Do you, does anyone know who that is? Chukar Amuna. And who is he? RMP. RMP, our representative. And he represents us in the Houses of Parliament. And so, uh, like an MP, um, uh, Jesus is obviously far, far greater. But in order to be able to act for us, to do something on our behalf, he has to be like us. So Chukar Amuna grew up in Streatham, he lives here. Um, he understands Streatham theoretically. 55% of Streatham voted for him. Um, he's got a strong seat in the Houses of Parliament. The, um, has anyone been following the American presidential elections? Mm. Few people. <laughs> Does anyone think they've been following them so closely they can recognise all those faces? <laughs> do you really think you could? I probably could do most. So just tell us who, who they are, not, not their names, but what, who are those faces? Uh, a mixture of Republicans and Democrats who wanted to be the top man in the States and the top woman in the States. Okay. So these are the presidential candidates. And in a similar way to how all these people want to be president, but only one of them will end up being chosen, um, what we get, what we got first of all with God's declaration is um, God saying, this is my, my person. And that's a bit like uh, the Republicans, the Democrats or the Independents are choosing their, their person to, to represent them. Um, but uh, ultimately they, they are going to be whittled down and all of them are going to fail except for one. And with this list of names, it's a little bit like that. So everyone chooses who will represent them, and they all go up there, and then in the primaries they get whittled down. And what happened in, when God created the world? He created Adam and Eve. And Adam, the first human being, failed to live up to the reality of being the son of God. And so immediately after Adam, that reality of being the son of God was broken. And so Adam fails. And then after him comes a son. And uh, with Adam and Eve, when they failed, when they uh, pursued independence from God, when they ate from that tree, when they ran away from God, the relationship was broken. Uh, They were cut off. But in being cut off, God made Eve a promise. He said that after her, one of her offspring would be the one who would crush the serpent's head, the devil who had led them astray, who'd who tempted them to uh, run away from God. And so always the question came with this list of names. If you go back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, you get this list of names. The question is, will this be the one who lives forever and defeats Satan and defeats death? And it's almost like this is a list of candidates. Seth and Enosh and Kenon and and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. No, we're not going to have them. We're not going to have them. We're not going to have them because they fail. They fail. They fail to represent us. 
They fail to be good enough to bring us back into relationship with God. And then finally, we get Jesus. Yes, this is Jesus, the one who is declared to be the Son of God. And the principle then is, go and win. Go and win. Go and succeed. Go and achieve God's rescue plan. The father-son relationship that was broken with Adam can be, is restored in Jesus. And then he can come and rescue others and bring us back into relationship with God. And so, at the end of this list of names, the question we have is, okay, if Jesus is going to be the, the Son of God, can he be the Son of God that Adam failed to be? Can he be the great king that David failed to be? Can he be the great saviour? And so we come to our third point. Jesus, the Son of God, can rescue us. Jesus, the Son of God, is recognised. He can represent us. And then Jesus, the Son of God, can rescue us. And here we come into chapter (coughs) 4. Now what we get here is where... Jesus is led into the desert. But just have a look at exactly how that's phrased in chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus goes into a time of testing. This isn't accidental. This isn't Jesus' own whim. This is Jesus depending on God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, as to what he should do next. And the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. It's deliberate, it's planned. (coughs) And you see verse 2, where for 40 days he was tempted, or the footnote says, tested. Now in Jesus' mind, and then in the first Jewish readers of this passage, this would have brought to mind the time when God's people were led into the wilderness after being saved from slavery in Egypt. They were rescued from slavery in Egypt, and they were brought out. And God described his rescued people as his son, as like his firstborn son. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, God says this. I haven't put it on screen, but just listen and see if you can pick up whether Jesus would have seen allusions to history as he was led into the desert. God says to his people, Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase, and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. God's speaking to them at the end of 40 years in the wilderness. To humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you see God 
was testing his people in the wilderness. And if you know that story, you'll know they failed. And so as we approach this passage about Jesus being tempted, we're not primarily thinking, well, how do we resist temptation? Are we going to get some really good tips from the ultimate guy who resisted temptation? And what we're looking at is someone who's come to live the life that God's people have always failed to live. They were tested in the wilderness and they failed. And here is Jesus sent into the wilderness to be tested. And the question is, will he succeed or will he fail? Well, let's drill down a little bit into some of the detail in here. The first temptation, verse 3. So Jesus had eaten nothing for those days, and he was hungry. God had led him into this. God had put him in this awful situation. Do you ever feel like you're in a really awful situation, like... You're not getting what you need, the job that you need, the money you need, the house that you need, the relationships that you need. And you think, has God abandoned me? Does God even care about me? What's very striking here is that Jesus, the most perfect man who ever lived, living in perfect relationship with God as his heavenly father, full of the Holy Spirit, goes through the most horrific (laughs) thing. And it's not a sign of God's absence, it's a sign of God's presence. But still he's very weak. And the devil comes to him, verse 3, and says, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. It seems what the devil is doing here is very similar to what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. If you know the story, God placed a tree in the middle of the garden to allow Adam and Eve the option as to whether they would choose to follow God and obey his commands and experience life to the full in relationship with him, or whether they would choose to uh, define good and evil for themselves. And God placed a tree in the middle of the garden, and it had fruit, and that fruit looked attractive. And the devil comes to Adam and Eve, or to Eve, and says, did God really say you must not eat from that tree? Would he really do that kind of thing? Would God be a killjoy to you like that? It seems that devil's doing exactly the same to Jesus. If you're the son of God, tell the stones with bread, because does God really care about you? Denying you nice food? And, and you can take matters into your own hands. You're the son of God. So why bother depending on your father God? Because that's clearly not working, is it? I mean, you've been here 40 days, and you've had nothing to eat, and you're starving hungry, God doesn't care about you. And Jesus answers, verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And as the quote continues, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus knows that it's not about what we have in the immediacy of the situation. It's about a relationship with the God we were made to know. We're not made to function as independent beings, doing our own thing when we feel like it. No, we are made for a relationship with God, to trust him. We're made to see the life-giving power of God's word, that he can sustain us through the hardest times. That he puts us through to test us, to discipline us, to, to, to shape us. And Jesus knows he's going through this, and the Father loves him, and he can trust him, And he can trust him because God has promised it in his word. 
And so Jesus says, no, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. No, I'm not going to just do my own thing. Well, there's lots of applications to us, aren't there? Aren't there so many times that we think, well, God isn't answering my prayers for this thing, so I'm going to do it my way. And if that involves ignoring him and pushing him out of the picture, well, he's let me down so I can just get on with it myself. And where we fail, Jesus succeeds. What is it that you're going through that you think God is letting you down on? What hasn't he given you? What do you need to use your own crafty means to to get for yourself? What is he denying you that you so desperately want? What is the equivalent of 40 days without food for you at the moment? What What are you being starved of? Does God really love you? Does he care about you? You need to trust his word. And yet we can all think of times when we fail, when we take matters into our own hands, when we do things for the wrong reasons. Next temptation. Verse 5. The devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, Satan says to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree, then you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You can define right and wrong for yourself. You can be in control. You'll have a sense of authority over your own lives. Wouldn't you want to be like that? Isn't that the same temptation here? If you do things my way, the devil says, you'll have all this authority. Why do you need to wait? Why do you need to go through all this pain and suffering that you've just been reminded of from Isaiah? Why do you need to be humiliated? You could have everything you need now, Jesus. You can see that I've got all this authority already, the devil says. So can you. Can you really trust God? He, he said that the nations would be Abraham's inheritance. It's been over 2,000 years since that, Jesus. Can your God really be trusted? Why not just do what I say, do things my way? It could be an awful lot easier. Very striking, Jesus' answer, verse 8. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. If you were to look up that quote from Deuteronomy 6, it's um, fear the Lord your God and serve him only. The word worship could also be fear. A striking thing, isn't it? Who do you fear? Do you fear circumstances, the things you're going through, the pressure you face, the desire to have a quick way out? Well, do you fear God? And fear isn't a thing that we should run away from when it comes to God, because actually the only time you experience real fear of God in terms of being in awe of Him is when you're close to His presence. When you run away from Him, when you ignore Him, when you pretend He doesn't exist, well, then you don't fear God at all. Fear is a sign of intimacy. And Jesus recognises, actually, 
If I feared God and all the things that would happen if I was separated from a relationship with him, then actually I can enjoy a relationship with him and I need not fear anything else. And all those things that crowd in and say, follow me, do things my way. Well, I don't need those things. What is it that you fear at the moment? Whose approval do you crave? What are you tempted to do that you know that would push God out of the picture? Worship the Lord, fear the Lord, and serve Him only. And experience with the Lord Jesus Christ fullness of life. Not an easy life, but fullness of life. And then, last temptation. Verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Oh, this one must be okay because the devil's quoting the Bible. Quoting straight from Psalm 91. Quoting it accurately. A little warning here. If you ever get tidbit quotes and you think, oh, that sounds great. I've not heard that before. That's really exciting. That's going to boost my Christian life. Make sure you go back to where that quote is from. You can misuse God's word, and that's exactly what Satan is doing here. You know how God said that if Adam and Eve were to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die because they'd be cut off from a relationship with him? Like a, like a branch cut off from the tree? Well, it might live on for a bit, but then it would die. And the devil says, you will not surely die. Just, just have a go. Just, just taste and you'll see. You'll not surely die. And it's as if the devil's saying that to to Jesus here. You'll not surely die if you throw yourself off from here. In fact, God loves you too much. He says so in his word, doesn't he? He'll command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Do you know that God loves you because you're going through a lot of pain at the moment? Why don't you just put him to the test, throw yourself off? And you'll see that he really loves you. And Jesus replies... Do not put the Lord your God to the test. What is that test? Testing God in this kind of circumstance is the opposite of trust, isn't it? It's the opposite of trust. If you're sure that someone loves you, you don't start doing crazy things in order to get their attention because you're absolutely confident in their love. Jesus is saying, I I trust him, I I know he loves me, and I don't need to do crazy things that you're telling me to do in order to get his attention. We do that with God, we kind of say, God, if you do this, then then I'll give you that, and we play a kind of tit-for-tat game, and actually what we end up doing is thinking, God, if I do enough for you, then I'll earn a relationship with you. God to the test in that. God, you don't seem to be coming up trumps for me in this area. Look, if I do a bit more sort of good stuff over here, will you give me that? And if you don't, well, then we're quits. Now, the relationship we're made for is one of unconditional love. Now, I want us to think over tea and so on. 
how does this apply to us? Because it's going to be specific in your different situations. Are there relationships you're pursuing? Are there jobs you're pursuing? Is there money you're pursuing? Are we poor hoarding because you just don't trust God enough with the situation that he's put you in? Well, the Lord Jesus is a great model for us. And we mustn't think it was easy for Jesus because he was the Son of God. No, he was perfect humanity. And actually, the more you resist temptation, the harder it is, not the easier it is. I mean, to say, oh, that was easy for Jesus because he was the Son of God, is like saying, oh, well, it was easy for that guy swimming across the channel. The, The further you get in swimming across the channel, the harder it is, and the harder it is, and the harder it is. Jesus was perfect humanity. He depended on the Holy Spirit just as we do. We fight sin just as he did, which is a huge encouragement because all the resources given to Jesus are given to us. But we mustn't think that this is primarily tools for us to Anna, you're on Nina's very own crash. Is that all right? I was just thinking, I was like, is that my child? We mustn't think that what we're given is a set of tools as to how to resist sin. They do work like that. Primarily, we're told that Jesus is the Son of God who can rescue us because where we fail, where everyone up to this point had failed, Jesus held on to his relationship with God. Jesus was that branch that stayed firmly rooted in the tree. And then Jesus was able, therefore, to represent us, to swap places with us. If I was more organised this afternoon, we were going to share the Lord's Supper together, the bread and the wine. And the great thing about that is Jesus used it as a picture of what he did for us as he died on the cross. He said, as he handed round the bread, this is my body, broken for you. (coughs) And as he handed round the wine, he said, this is my blood shed for you. And what he was saying was, as you take this bread, it's a symbol of the fact that you swap places. That you are taking to yourself my whole identity. Your body should be broken and cut off from God. Your blood should be shed, as it were, and cut off from God. You should be separated from God for all eternity. But instead, I'm going to the cross... And as I die on that cross, well, we know what Jesus cried out. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one person who should have never been forsaken, never been cut off from God, never been separated from his heavenly father, died instead of you and me if we put our trust in him. Jesus was the perfect son of God. And yet, final point on the sheets. By trusting in Jesus, you are a child of God. Sorry, it's a little bit of a cheesy picture. It's of a little girl held in the arms of, in the hands of God, as it were. It's a little depiction. What we see here is not that we, if we follow these techniques, can earn a relationship with God. What we see here is Jesus doing what we fail to do. So that if we trust in him, <coughs> all our security, all our affirmation comes from him and his performance. What is it that you're trying to prove at the moment? Maybe in your Christian life, where are you trying to find encouragement, but you have failed 
What are you trying to sort out on your own? Maybe you're looking to Christian friends to tell you that you're a good person and that will make you think, oh yes, I've done enough, I've done enough Jesus stuff to make me think that I'm genuinely a Christian, that I'm worthy of God. Now actually that list of names should remind us, we just add our name to that, failed son of God, failed daughter of God, we've failed. No recognition from another person, no recognition from our own achievements will ever get us to God. We need to hear instead the words of the Father to Jesus. And know that if we trust in Christ, then these words are true of us. You see those in verse 22 of chapter 3 in the sheets? Second, second sentence. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You are my son, you are my daughter, you are my child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. If you are trusting in Jesus this afternoon, that is true of you. And your status could not be closer to God. Not because of anything you've done. If you've, if you've messed up today and you're trusting in Christ, that is still true of you. If you messed up last night and those feelings of failure are still ringing in your ears, if you're trusting in Christ, he's like that that fireman who goes into the flames, he had all the fire retardant gear to just go in there and to rescue you from the flames and to make you his own. And it's as if he's holding you to himself and the voice of the Father comes, this is my child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And what is said of Jesus is said of you. We're going to sing. A song that reminds us of that. It's a, quite a lively song. And it says some very profound words. When I was lost, you came and rescued me, reached down into the pit and lifted me. Oh Lord, such love. I was as far from you as I could be. You knew all the things I've ever done, but Jesus' blood has cancelled everyone. Oh Lord, such grace to qualify me as your own. And then this last verse is particularly striking. And so as we sing it together, let this sink deep. Now I've come into your family... For the Son of God has died for me, not because of anything I've done, not because I've been a good Christian this week. My status before you has got nothing to do with me, it's got to do with Him and the fact that I'm trusting in Him. Oh Lord, such peace. I can live, I can fail in my career, I can see it in my career. I can have too much money, I can have too little money. I can have the perfect husband or wife, I could have no husband or wife. I'm as loved by you as I could be in the full assurance of your love. Now with every confidence we come... Oh Lord, such joy to know that you delight in us. This is my child. With you I am well pleased. I delight in you. Let's stand and sing.